Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing? Uh, my name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here, and if, unless I'm cataclysmically wrong, if you're a middle schooler, you can leave. Um, so I've been wrong before, but there we go, follow that guy over there. <laughs> Way to go, look at him go, let's give him a round of applause as they go. I, I was terrified for a moment because I'm about to tell a story that involves one of my kids, and I was worried it was gonna cost me $5 if she was still in the room. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, there we go. I'm safe, unless any of you snitches uh, tell on me. Uh, we got to go and buy our Christmas tree this week. Uh, and so we went off to a place called Tree Town. Uh, it's a place that is delightful, is built for kids. It's a place of crazy prices. We walked in and we uh, saw the first tree, like right at the front, it was perfect. And I flipped over the price tag, uh, and this is a fresh tree, mind, it will die. Uh, and uh, it said $260. Uh, and so we continued to search and we walked around this place for about an hour arguing over the merits of different trees. Uh, and then there was this beautiful moment where my 11 year old turned around to me and she looked at me like this and she said, Dad, you're a pastor. You know there's no such thing as a perfect person. There's no such thing as a perfect tree either. <laughs> and I said, pipe down you little brat. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I may have said that. <laughs> but, but we ended up leaving this very expensive place after an hour of searching uh, and walked into Home Depot, saw the first tree there, which was perfect, bought it, and went home feeling very happy about our Christmas experience uh, and the cheap tree that we got from our favorite place in the world. Uh, decorating for Christmas is this, is this kind of like, it's almost a sensitive subject, I feel. Uh, about uh, five weeks ago, my neighbors committed what I consider to be uh, an egregious breach of social contract. Uh, they didn't let their dog poop on my lawn. They didn't blow leaves into my yard. They didn't paint their fence the wrong color, which in Highlands Ranch seems to be like the ultimate sin. <laughs> they put their Christmas decorations up in like the first of November. Uh, and so briefly forgetting the Jesus command to love your neighbor and that I was preaching on it just a couple of weeks later, uh, I marched across the road and said, what on earth are you guys doing? Don't you know that it's people like you that make it snow in November, which it promptly did the day after, on Saturday night, nonetheless. It's, it's not that I actually mind people putting up Christmas decorations. Of course, people are free to do whatever they want in that respect. It's actually that I, I often wonder whether we as a society have now come to a point where we actually just rush headlong from one thing to another, that we actually have no space to pause. In actual fact, simply arrival at a destination is our only purpose. I don't have a TV, wow, that's a surprise, okay. Uh, and I also don't have this. I, this is gonna be a fun day. Uh, <laughs> we live, you might say, in, in an arrival-focused world. 
The other day I left on a journey, we were going to a Christmas party up in the middle of Denver somewhere, a place that apparently has no parking for anybody except the people that live there and not even them. Uh, and I, as, make, as I was making this journey, I, I just noticed on the map as you drive anywhere in particular, the thing that you become fixated on is what? It's the estimated time of arrival. All of your energy is focused now to being there uh, and not the journey you are on. As we enter this new season of church life, that doesn't fit for this theme of Advent. Advent requires more than that. Kerry Van Der Veen says this, the message of Advent doesn't fit neatly into a soundbite or a vignette. It's too complex, too deep to compete with glitter and noise, and it's a hard sell in a culture that would rather skip straight to the big finish. But Advent is too important to be forgotten because it is this season that prepares us to encounter our Lord. This is an intentionally slow season. Advent is a journey to be experienced. It is not a destination to be reached. Now, now it does beautifully culminate in this moment of Christmas, this celebration of the moment of Jesus' incarnation into this world, but there is so much to gain. As we say at Easter time, we say something like, if you get out of Easter what you put into Lent, I, I could say the same about Christmas. You get out of Christmas what you put into Advent. This slow pace of contemplation is so, so important for church life. If you're kind of new to church, or maybe you've spent your time in a church that doesn't do a liturgical calendar. This is a picture of, of our journey as a Christian, Jesus-following community throughout the year. There's the moment of anticipation that begins everything, that is Advent. In actual fact, all of this journey from now until May, you might call the story of God. And maybe your question is, well, wait a moment, shouldn't all of it be the story of God? And, and the answer is yes but also no, because after Pentecost, what we celebrate is this, it's, it's now God's story in the world through us. But as we begin this season, it's a season that perhaps focuses more on the winter than on the summer. It's a slow season, a contemplative season. Why is that important? That's important for a couple of reasons. It's important because you as a community have a hopelessly positive, upbeat, Enneagram 7 teaching pastor. That means that I do everything that I can to bury my hand, head in the sand, in terms of the, the, the awkward things of life. I try to avoid pain. I try to move in the other direction from it. And, and I'm quite like the society that you live in as well. What the church calendar does is it provides space for us to say, no, we're, we're going to enter into that pain. We're not going to whistle past the graveyard. We're going to take those experiences and contemplate them. We're going to move slower than we could. And when Christmas comes, it will be all the richer for it. Advent, this season that we're entering, it is a time of waiting. It's a time of waiting. We realize that people waited before us, waited long years for the coming of the Messiah. And we as a community, we still wait. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Throughout this first week, we'll speak about hope, this first theme of Advent. And what we'll do is you'll feel as we'll slowly, hopefully, depending on whether I get excited and speed up, but we'll slowly move towards this table, this act of memory, 
this act where we remind ourselves that God has come into this world and has done something for us. And yet we'll also, because it's Advent, remember that there are things still to be done. This God of the universe who came and did something will do something again. The thing that is kind of already is also not yet. The work of Jesus is complete, but the culmination hasn't happened. And so maybe the tension that you experience in the world, some of the, oh man, why is it this way? Maybe some of that doesn't get fixed in this season, but we do get to wrestle with it in this season. Walter Brueggemann says this, this is the time for getting ready. Getting ready time is not mainly about busy activity, entertaining, and fatigue. Getting ready time is mainly abrasive, asking, thinking, pondering, and re-deciding. Fleming Rutledge, this brilliant preacher from the 80s, said years ago that, that Advent begins in the dark. It begins in the space where the light isn't on and we'll feel it throughout the season as we slowly add candle after candle after candle. Today we lit candle one and it's this slow flicker of light in this world that can often appear as dark. Advent is a time of waiting. You might even say Advent is a time of solemn waiting. Advent is a time of solemn waiting. Solemn because it allows people, just like you and I, who have experienced the low points of life to contemplate them well. The writer Tish Harrison Warren talks about a moment in her life, a moment that some of you may have shared, the moment of the loss of a child, perhaps a theme we don't think about with Easter, where we think about the birth of a child. But, but she talks about this moment where she lay in a hospital bed, her gown covered in blood, and this is what she said. I wanted to pray, but couldn't drum up the words. It isn't that the words make the bleeding stop weren't holy or sophisticated enough. I was in a paper-thin hospital gown covered in blood. This was no time for formality. I wanted healing, but I needed more than just healing. I needed this moment of crisis to find its place in something greater. The vast mystery of God, the surety of God's power, the reassurance of God's goodness. I had to decide in that moment when I didn't know how things would turn out, whether my ba with my baby dead and my body broken, whether the things I preached about God loving and being there for me were true. And yet I was bone weary and I was heart broken. Perhaps you've experienced that as an individual. Perhaps you've stood next to a hole in the ground that is all too small, that speaks of a life gone too soon. Perhaps you've experienced that on a societal level. You've looked at the way society is moving and said, what is going on with this place? Perhaps you've experienced pain and struggle and suffering. And perhaps you experience it right now and Christmas rushes up like an unwelcome storm. Advent is the space for you. If what she says resonates with you, Advent is the space for you. It's a space of contemplation 
and wondering. It's a space where we get to wrestle with the idea of theodicy, perhaps on an intellectual level, perhaps on a felt existential level. Theodicy is this idea or question around the struggle we see in the world and perhaps the struggle we feel internally. Does God know? Is God good? Can God act? If all those are true, then pain and suffering should be done and gone. And in actual fact, a broader question might be this. Does God feel suffering like we feel suffering? Does he have that emotional level? Does he feel it as we feel it? Intellectual philosophers have said for years that perhaps God is impassable. He doesn't have those kind of emotions. He isn't inflicted with suffering. And yet some of us might say, no, I want a God that can suffer with me, that can experience with me. Perhaps you found that the comments that perhaps God will bring good out of suffering, perhaps that you're learning something aren't actually sufficient, aren't actually enough, that you want more from this God of the universe. As usual, there are more questions than I can answer in just a few minutes. We have a podcast. We'd love to get your thoughts and questions on this this week and just find a way to wrestle with it together. As we move into the text, I want to remind you one more time of this. As people waited long ago, we wait today. Throughout this time, we'll explore texts from the Revised Lectionary. It's a document that was put together years ago. It means that I don't get really much choice over what texts I preach from. There's three, four possibilities, and I get to pick one of those, yes, but it means that thousands, millions, perhaps, of churches around the world are looking at some of these texts today. So the text might feel unusual, might feel that it lands harshly, might feel that it, at least initially, doesn't doesn't teach us anything, and yet I think what you'll find is that actually, no, there is nothing new under the sun that we're constantly learning the same thing. So if you have a text, I'm going to invite you to turn to Isaiah 64, and I will read it for you. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We will shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are all the clay. You are the putter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry with us beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. God, for those in the room who are desperate for a God who can act, would you speak to them? For those in the room that feel they are forgotten, would you speak? For those who are in the room that are wrestling with those questions of theodicy, 
Would you speak? For those that are in grief, that have experienced loss, this year, this month, this week, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would you speak? You rarely give easy answers. But I believe that the thing that you always give us is yourself. And perhaps that's the thing that we really need. Amen. To the text. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble. Before you, I once got to do church with a preacher from the Welsh apostolic background. So he would take texts like these and he would preach them in King James English with a Welsh accent, which perhaps is how this text is supposed to be read. Oh, that thou would rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come and the mountains would flow down in thy presence. It rings with this, just this rupture into the world, which is what the text is asking for. It's asking that the God of the universe would act in a physical, visible way, an understandable request. Look at the things that are picked out that you would, that the mountains might flow down in thy presence in, in the NIV version it says that they would tremble before you, big physical structures would be impacted by the presence uh, of God. That when a fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, would you do things that we can see that are tangible? Would you come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you? There's an unwritten question behind the text, an unwritten struggle. There's an angst behind it. God, why are things like this? Why aren't you doing what you clearly can do because you've done it before? Why won't you act? Why won't you make happen the things that we want to happen? As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, why don't you do what we need you to do? I'm gonna suggest that throughout this text there's four different movements, perhaps four things that you and I might need to know that we can implement in our own lives when we experience the kind of trauma or struggle that this prophet is talking about. This is a prophet who speaks for his people, but he also speaks for God. And there's times within the text that you might say he feels like he's on God's side right now, and times in the text you might say it feels like he's on the people's side right now, and times in the text that it feels like he, he's somewhere in between the two. He's kind of like trying to hold both together with one hand each and, and trying to bring about a reunion with God and his people. The first part, the first thing is, I picked the word longing. Could have been the word desire. Could it could have been the word request, but longing seemed to tap into it more, that feeling of like, please, desperation. I need something to happen. This idea is all the way through the text, especially in places like Psalms. This is Psalm 74, verse 11, perhaps my favorite example of this. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. This is a writer who is seeing struggle in the world, who is seeing the world as it shouldn't be, and he said, you know, God, it feels like you took your hand, you just put it in your pocket. You could act, you could do something, but you don't. It's there, your right, your right hand, your strong hand, it doesn't move, it doesn't 
that act it does nothing. And it's like, take it out, do something with it. Fix this world, fix this problem. This is my longing, this is my desire. The text begins with longing. Longing that is natural when you experience the world as it shouldn't be or see the world as it shouldn't be. When you experience it personally in your own individual life, when you see it in the wider world around you. He moves on, for when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. This people of Israel had a story. Their story centered around the fact that their God had moved in history. In a time where people believed gods were regional, they had power over specific geography, they had a story that said, no, for us it's different. Our God can move anywhere. In the foreign lands of Egypt with all their gods, in the desert that was owned by nobody, this God, he can move and he can act. This God is different. Other gods are wood, are idols, are things that can be destroyed. No, this God, he is different. He can act. Second movement is this movement from longing to memory. It's this, this moment where, where the, the, the writer reminds himself that God has moved in the past. He expresses this desire, this longing, but he says, I'm doing that based on all of the things that you've done. You haven't been the God that didn't answer prayer. You've been the God that did answer prayer. That's what's made you different and that's what's made us different too. Why is it different now? Why can't you do the things or why won't you do the things that you used to do? All of these two movements can be summed up in this phrase. Can't it all be as it was? This was our story. Can't it be as it was before? And perhaps in lots of areas of your life you've experienced that tension too. Can't it be like it was when the family was all together? Can't it be as it was when my parents were still alive? Can't it be as it was in the moment before the moment that's not on a calendar but still hits every single year? This is the request of this prophet of God. You come to her help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? He expresses this longing. He expresses this, this, this kind of reminding nature of things that have come in the past, this memory. And then he starts to turn this corner, this brave corner, this decisive corner. He starts to ask about he, how he and the people might be implicated in this. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to your sins. Now what I don't want you to hear from this text is if you've experienced something traumatic, negative in life, that that's, this is this prophet saying that that's your fault. 
But what this prophet does that amazes me is able to look at society as a whole and he's able to implicate himself in everything that he sees. He, he acts in this moment as though he's confessing. It's this movement of confession. And, and I didn't know if confession was a good enough word, so I've added a second word that may be more helpful, especially if there's something that you're holding that's heavy and weighty, that's very personal and individual. It's also this act of truth-telling. He starts to talk about society as he sees it. And he incredibly takes this movement as he begins to take ownership of it. He begins to say, perhaps I'm included in this in some way. Have you noticed how when society seems like it's messy, when there's aspects to it that you say, what is going on here? One of the tendencies is to say, this has nothing to do with me. This is them over there. If we could fix them, then everything would be fine. That's not what this prophet does. He says, I'm included in this in some way. The other tendency is to say, well, well, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't matter to me. And we don't know anything about where this prophet is personally or how well he's doing. He comes from an affluent family, it seems, but he doesn't say, no, no, I can just hide from this. He says, no, I'm here and I'm included. When we think about the way that the world looks, it's pretty easy for us at times to take one of those two outs. This is just a few of the things that I picked up from this year. This year has had more billion dollar disasters, whether natural or man-made, than any other year in history. In America alone, there's over 600 mass shootings this year. We have 9% inflation. Worldwide, there are multiple wars, Ukraine, Israel, Myanmar, all over the place, Sudan, there's war after war after war, and then countless stories of individual suffering. Sometimes our tendency is to say, that's them being them. Just gonna ignore it. If they got fixed, everything would be fine. And sometimes the tendency is to say, I'm gonna bury my head in the sand. Pretend none of this is happening. A few years ago, this incredible writer, Martin Amis, wrote a book called Zone of Interest. It's just been made into a, a movie. It's just come out. Zone of Interest is this movie about this family that live in this idyllic place. You see them gathered with their friends at a party. They're, they're swimming in the pool. They're doing their thing. Life is continuing for them. You see the conversations between husband and wife where they wrestle with how they've been given this plot of land and, and how they're gonna cultivate it into something. And over time, you see that the way that the land changes as they work hard on it. See that the way that they interact as a couple and life is pretty idyllic except for the fact the wife has a, a struggle. Her husband works too much and she expresses this frustration that his work takes him away as often as it does. You start to hear them call each other by first name. Her name is Hedwig, and his name is Rudolph. And then as the, the movie continues, you start to notice how outside of this paradise, what you see is kind of industrial-type buildings dotted around. As the movie unfolds, you find out that his name is actually Rudolf Huss. He's the camp commandant at Auschwitz, and they live right next door. All of the movie, all of the book is centered around this idyllic place that they are shaping, this family life that they are living, the individual struggles that they have as husband and wife. And the worst atrocity in history is happening 
on that doorstep and they don't know it. She doesn't know. She just believes everything's fine. And her big frustration is this. It's you go to work too often. You work too much. And death is on their doorstep. It speaks to our ability to avoid the thing that is next to us. And that's what this prophet doesn't do. This prophet says, no, I'm implicated in this. I'm not going anywhere, I'm involved in this society. Did I cause it? Am I the beginning of it? No, but I am here and I am staying with these people. The opposite of zone of interest might be the story of this guy, Metropolitan Kirill, a a priest in Bulgaria during the Second World War. His story is compelling. He was there in the midst of the Nazis trying to move Bulgarian Jews out of Bulgaria and, and as they begin to round them up in this one moment in history, this one day where they say we're gonna gather all of the Jewish people and we're gonna ship them off to the death camps. There's this moment where they're all gathered in the train station, waiting for the train to be loaded. A metropolitan Kirill arrives with a bunch of the people from his church. He walks towards the gates and there's this moment where the soldiers, they they tell him you can't come in here. And they take their guns and they point them towards him and he turns around to his church people and he laughs. And he says, they say that I can't go in. And he pushes the guns aside. And he climbs over the fence with his people. And he stands in the amongst of these people that are about to be shipped off to all of these different places, Belson, Auschwitz. And he reads them a passage from the book of Ruth. He says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. It's this moment of solidarity where he places himself in the midst of a people to whom he owes nothing, to whom he has no real connection. And it's the moment where he says, I'm staying, not leaving. I'm with you even if we feel disconnected. It's this moment of confession, this moment of truth telling that resembles the work of this prophet Isaiah. The movements of this text move longing, memory, truth telling, and there is the hope. This is where the hope comes. On this day of Advent when we remember hope, this is where it appears in the text, yet. Love how that yet moves the whole text in a different direction. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. You are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. This prophet, after implicating himself with the people, brilliantly then implicates God with those people too. He says, you're our father, we're in relationship with you. And you made us, you made us, stay with us. Look at the, the poignancy of the end of the text. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are, we are all your people. Keep your eyes on us. Don't turn away from us. Look in our direction. There's this moment that the text ends on which is simply this. We are in relationship. Remember, pay attention. 
in the midst of trauma, in the midst of struggle, that's the ask of God. Remember us, pay attention to us, which maybe is something we have longed for in the midst of our own personal trauma, in the midst of our own societal ills. We're like, God, are you even looking? Would you pay attention to what's going on here? Which raises this question. Does God forget? Do you think it's God that forgets? From my own experience, what I would say is this. It's me that forgets. It's it's me that forgets. Forget that I'm human. Forget that I have limitations. Forget that I'm human. I sometimes refuse to act like a human, at least a good one. It's me that forgets. It doesn't seem like it's him that forgets. In actual fact, earlier, God has already given given Isaiah the, the answer to this question. In chapter 49, verse 15, he said this. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. This text enters into the real trauma of this world and it has a prophet in it who says, I'm staying in the midst of it. He asks God to remember his people and God says, I haven't forgotten. It seems like hope is born, at least according to this passage here. Hope is kindled when we remind ourselves of what has been and remember that we are not forgotten now. We remind ourselves of what has been and we remember that we are not forgotten now. When I was about seven years old, my mom left me on the playground. I was at school, this is a way to get rid of like your childhood baggage. Uh, I, I, was, I was at school, uh, and it was that moment where the bell rang and they, uh, we all flew out into the playground and, and we didn't have school buses, we, we all got picked up and there's this moment where uh, all of the parents are beginning to arrive. And, and your dream was always as a kid, like you want your parents to be the last-ish, but not too much the last. You wanna, you wanna be able to stay and hang and have fun to like very close to like the last minute, but, but you, you don't want them to not turn up. That's, that, that's always a disaster. And so I'm watching as my, my friend's kids, uh, my friend's parents are coming and they're, they're all starting to disappear and I'm looking around and I'm like, oh man, like, this is getting bad. And then there's this moment where everybody's gone and it's just me and it's lonely and I'm literally just kicking rocks around by myself. I think that's a saying and I'm, I'm actually doing that at this point. And then I start to notice teachers' cars start to pull out of the parking lot. And I'm like, there's one left and I've, like, I've, got, I've got one person still here with me. It's probably the headmaster or something. And then they start to leave as well. And, and, and there's this moment of loneliness, of forgottenness. And in the midst of that moment, this is what seven-year-old introspective Alex thought. This is how weird I was at seven. I don't think I have this level of introspection. Now, I started to think about my mom and who she was. And I said to myself, has she ever forgotten me before? And in my mind, I look and I'm like, do you know what? There's never been a time where I wasn't picked up eventually. Sometimes earlier, sometimes, and if you got left completely by your parents, I'm sorry, like if this story doesn't get you, but, but there's this moment where I'm like, has she ever forgotten? And somewhere deep inside of me, I knew the answer. I was like, no, she hasn't forgotten. She's late and she's doing her best to get here. And she's going to turn up at some point 
and it's going to be okay. In actual fact, I'm not forgotten. I'm remembered, I'm loved. I'm a firstborn son. We all know that we're loved firstborn kids. Life is great. Hope is kindled when we remind ourselves of what has been. Remind ourselves of how God has acted in the past for us. And remember that we are not forgotten now. We are not forgotten now. As followers of Jesus, we occupy this fascinating space. We call this season Advent, and it's Advent for a couple of reasons. We live between two Advents. We live between an Advent long ago and an Advent that will come in the future. When I say that there's this moment where we have to remind ourselves of what God has done and remember we are, forgot, we, we are not forgotten now, we get to move for just a second as we start to come to this table beyond cross, beyond death, beyond resurrection. We get to remember a God who has acted in this world decisively for us. We get to remind ourselves of what he has done and we get to remember that we are not forgotten now, that he will come for his people. This is a picture of Yuri Gagarin. He was the first man in space in 1961. He does the first circumnavigation, the first orbit of the globe up in space. And there's this moment where he's reported to have said, I didn't see God when I got there. Turns out it was maybe some, just some propaganda from a, a true believer atheist. In actual fact, he was a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. But this story started to spread that the first man who had been into space said, God wasn't around anywhere when I looked. He was missing in action and probably not there at all. And the British writer C.S. Lewis heard about this story and he decided to give some thoughts on it in a local journal. And this is what he said. He said, if there is a God who created the world and created us, I could no more meet him than Hamlet could meet Shakespeare. If Hamlet wants to prove there is a Shakespeare, he's not going to be able to do it in a lab, nor is he going to be able to find Shakespeare by going up into the top of the stage, or even by getting into a rocket and orbiting the earth, although that would have been a very strange addition to Hamlet as a story. The only way he will know something about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. That's this thing that we remind ourselves of. We remind ourselves that in Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We remind ourselves that in Jesus, God has literally written himself into the story. That he has experienced our suffering, our moments of trauma. He's experienced society that seems like it's descending into hell. He has been there. He is sinless though he is, implicated himself in the story and said, these are my people. Where they go, I will go. N.T. Wright, in his brilliant fashion, adds an addition to this from John chapter 11, verse 25. He says that the word became flesh and the word wept at the tomb of his friend. 
There's this beautiful moment where Jesus, with his grief, stands in front of the tomb of his friend and he, he feels our suffering, which seems to me to solve all the questions about whether God is impassable or passable. It's a God who is able to suffer with us, feel all of the things that we have felt. And in the midst of that, to stay with us and to love us. And it's on that premise we come to this table. That premise we come to this table and bring all of our struggle, all of our angst, all of our longing, all of our memories of how God has acted in the past. We bring all of our needs and we come to this table and we say, I'm staying here, God. Please be with me. Remember that you are our Father. Remember, don't forget. And in this moment, when we come to the table, God meets with us and he says, I have not forgotten. You are not forgotten. You are remembered. You are loved. I'm gonna ask you to stand. As we do this time, some people call Eucharist, some people call Mass, the Lord's table. However you know it, it's free to all who know Jesus as their savior. Doesn't matter what church you attend, doesn't matter if you haven't been to church in a long, long time, Whoever you are, if you know Jesus, this table is for you. If you'd like someone to pray with you, there'll be some of our prayer team dotted around. They're kind of hidden over in the sides. If you're carrying this weight, this sense of, I just, I just don't, I don't feel like God remembers me. I feel like I'm stood in that playground with you. I feel like I'm just kicking rocks around and everybody's gone and I'm just here. If you would love someone to pray with you, to speak words over you, to remind you that you are not forgotten. They're there. If you'd like to just come to this table, we're gonna come and we're gonna take the bread and we're gonna take the wine. We're gonna ask you to take the bread alone, just to contemplate what Jesus has done. And then we'll come together as a community and we'll take the wine together. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.